welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 12.11 First Avenue North on the third floor. Something that you just could not believe to be true. You, you hear it and you go, no, no, that's not right. No, that doesn't sound right. You know, one of, those, one of those things that when you hear it, immediately you pull out your phone and you go to Wikipedia and say, somebody is wrong here. This can't possibly be true. I had this experience a few days ago. I was listening to a podcast and, and they brought up something that I just thought uh, could not be true. Let, let me tell you what they said. Saccharin, also known as sweet and low, the pink packets on your table has been around since 1879. 1879? No, no, I don't buy that. But it's true. In 1879, some scientist was working with coal tar. And because, you know, it's the 1870s, they lived life wild and free in the 1870s. And he got home after a long day of work without gloves, working with coal tar. And he happened to lick his hand. And he said, huh, something is very sweet that's on my hand. He went back to the lab, repeated the process, and there we have the birth of saccharin. Now, it didn't get very popular until World War I, where all of the ships that they had been using to transport sugar from the West Indies and Florida to everywhere else, those ships were commandeered for war. And so, like, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to get things sweet? Ah, that coal tar residue stuff from 1879. We'll start using that. Sounds like a plan. And, and so, in just a few years... Saccharin will celebrate its 150th birthday, which is unbelievable to me. Why do I bring up saccharin? Glad, glad you asked. Thank you. Thanks for filling that in. Because when we think of saccharin, when we think of sweet and low, NutraSweet, Steve, you fill in your blank with whatever packet you demand at the coffee shop when you sully your coffee with sugar. When we think about those things, what we know they are, is there a substitute that is not nearly as good as the real thing. Even people who are Diet Coke drinkers through and through are Diet Coke drinkers out of habit, not because it tastes better. Diet Coke does not taste better than Coke. It doesn't. Why? Because the, the saccharin, the sweet milk, that's a substitute that's not as good as the real thing. This morning we're going to talk about the phrase from the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the communion of saints. And what's true about us as humans is that you and I were created for community. Whether we're an introvert or an extrovert, whether we love being around people or low-key hate being around people, wherever we are, we know and have this desire in our heart to be around people, to have community. It's interesting, I was at One Million Cups, which is sort of a local entrepreneur's thing here in St. Pete, and they have them across the country. And there's a guy here in the Tampa Bay area who has created this sort of social network, and it's called New Town Connections. And you pay $45 a month, and $45 a month 
gets you into the club. And in order to get into the club, not only do you have to pay the money, but you have to go through a, a Skype interview process to make sure you're the right kind of person to be in the crowd. And that $45 gets you an invite to two events a month where you can go hang out with other cool people like you. Some of us look at that and go, wait a minute. $45 for you to tell me where to go? To go have a drink with somebody? No, no, I don't think that's what I want to do. But what that, what that strikes at, what that is getting at is something that's true of all of us. We're looking for community. And I would say that while we're looking for community, we're actually designed for something more. That ache in our heart points us to something deeper. Because while we, are, we desire community, we're designed for what the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of saints. But what happens is we end up settling for hanging out with like-minded people. The way that we sort of naturally seek community, the way that we do it, is by sort of going, okay... These people like the same things I... Ah, yes. These people like obscure 90s emo music. That's who I'm going to hang out with, right? These people are the same age as I am. That's who I'm going to hang out with. These people like the same things I like. These are now my people. And we sort of just find a group of people that are like-minded. Find a group of people that are kind of the same age, kind of the same place in life, and we go, okay, yep. That's the people I'm going to hang out with. And we sort of segregate ourselves off. We segregate ourselves off into millennials and people who like to make jokes about millennials. You, you heard about the millennial who was on um, Wheel of Fortune, right? Um, you know, he's playing Wheel of Fortune. He gets to a point and he says, uh, can I buy a vowel? And the host of Wheel of Fortune, I think it's, it's Pat Sajak. Pat Sajak kind of looks at him kind of skeptically. And the millennial hangs his head and says, can I rent a vowel? <laughs> we divide ourselves up simply by like-mindedness. And in doing so, our communities begin to look just like us. Our communities look just like us, and we know that they're missing something. We can feel this sort of, this is great, I like hanging out with these people, but something is missing. It's interesting, as, uh, as society has changed, one of the things that has grown is the um, number of folks who have no religion. And one of the problems that folks um, who assign themselves to the category of sort of nuns, uh, no religion or no affiliation, is this question of community. It was interesting. Uh, David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, was writing about this, and he said this, Secular individuals have to build their own communities. Religions come equipped with covenantal rituals that bind people together, sacred practices that are beyond individual choice. But secular people have to choose their own communities and come up with their own practices to make them meaningful. Now, we always want City Church to be a place where if you're just trying to figure out what God has to say, if you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, we want this to be a place for you. And I think that one of the things that as we talk about the idea of community of saints, 
that is sort of a critique is this, and this is a critique for people who are Christians and not Christians. Does your community provide real meaning to your life? Because most of the time, if it's just a like-minded affinity group, it's probably not providing any actual long-term meaning. Lots of you guys like to go to the gym, and that's not a problem, probably. But is it providing meaning? Is the group of friends that you've chosen to hang out with giving you any sort of long-term purpose? Is it providing community that's more than just, how was your day? Did you hear the new music? Did you do the new lift? Did you see the new movie? Fill in the blank with whatever your community affinity is. See, while we desire so bad to have community or really something deeper, most of us, Christian and not, are content to just hang out. We're just going to hang out. Nothing more, nothing deeper, nothing beyond that. And so we settle for meaningless community while we keep aching and longing for something more. What I want to do this morning is sort of lay out what that something more might be. Lay that out by looking at something that the Apostle Peter wrote and seeing how it tells us about what true community is, what the true community of the saints is. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read um, from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and read along with me. Uh, if you don't, it'll be on the screen. And it's also on the City Church app if you'd like. So I'd ask that everybody would stand up as I read this for us together. This is what St. Peter said. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen generation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. As Peter sort of lays this out, what we see is that the communion of saints is so much more than a community of like-minded people. If, you're, if church is just a community of like-minded people who vote the same way, a church is just a group of people who enjoy the same activities, who happen to do the same things on the weekends, then the church actually isn't the church. 
Peter lays out for us what the church really is. What the church really is, first, is a community of people who have been forgiven by God. As we read through that passage, you saw that, that Paul, or I'm sorry, Paul, Peter uses all of these illustrations. He talks about being a royal priesthood. He talks about spiritual sacrifices. But right in the middle of that passage, he says that those who believe in him will not be put to shame. And so what he's implying there, and what's important for us to see this morning, is that real community... Community that's not just hanging out. That's, that's the communion of the saints that we talk about when we affirm the Apostles' Creed. finds its basis in the Gospel. In order to have true community, I have to be willing to admit that I'm more broken and messed up than I think I am. That my problems, my sin, my defects run deeper than I want to admit. And true communion begins there. Because when we say that I am not all that I want you to think I am, I am not as good of a person as I want you to hope that I am, and you say the same thing to me, we admit that we're on equal footing. That we're on a level playing field. Whether we are rich or poor, whether we, our sins are on the outside and everybody can see them, or our sins are on the inside, self-righteousness and pride and all the things that sort of creep in that way. When we begin with the fact that we are broken and messed up and yet in need of Jesus, we can begin to have a different type of community. A community that's based on who Jesus is. And so what we see as we sort of walk through this is that oftentimes one of the things that keeps us from having community with other people is our own pride. Because if I think I'm better than you, I'm probably not going to spend time with you. If I think that I'm better than you, I'm not going to spend time with you. And we look around and go, well, that person doesn't have their life together. I don't want to corrupt myself with their bad morals because I've got such good morals going on over here. So I'm not going to hang out with those people. Fill in the blank with whatever your self-righteousness tends to mark out as those people. And what that is, is that is our pride. That is our unwillingness to admit our brokenness that keeps us from connecting with other people. If we're going to have true community, we have to start with admitting that we don't have it all together. That we are just as broken as the person sitting next to us, the person behind us in line at Publix, the person around us at our job. You know, it's easy for us to sort of let this self-righteousness creep in. So last night uh, I made a trip to Publix to get the bread and wine for this morning. And as I'm sitting there in line, they don't, they don't have enough lines open at this Publix. Right? I mean, there's, it, it, it looked like Walmart level lines. But at Publix. And so there's 
two lanes that are open side by side, and both of them have four or five people stacked up in those lanes. And so one of the nice public people comes over and opens up another lane. And she says, why don't some of you guys come over here? Right? And so I'm near the back of the line on the left. She opens a register farther to the left. And this guy who's in the line to the right just gets so mad. He's like, well, what about, what about the five people in our line? How come those people get, I'm already committed to this line. And he like starts like grumbling and like like kind of loudly complaining and like being hostile towards right. Now you think I'm telling that story to tell you how bad of a person he is. I'm not. First of all, because most of us have been that person. But second of all, my problem was I look at I looked at that guy like look at this guy. What a jerk. It's just, it's just Publix, man. And I thought that I was better than him. I genuinely looked at him and said, what kind of terrible person is this? What kind of good person am I? I don't complain about lying in Publix. I just politely stand in line until I don't. That sort of pride, that sort of pride that looks across the aisle at Publix and says, that person is the sort of thing that keeps us from having genuine community. And when we say we believe in the communion of saints, we have to start by being a people that are willing to admit that we are way more broken and prideful and self-righteous than we want to admit. The second thing about communion of saints that Peter shows us is that it, it's a life it's, it's communion of the saints is life giving and meaningful in the David Brooks quote one of the things he talked about was the fact that people have to come up with their own uh, ritual to assign meaning to their communities and in Christianity we already have these rituals that we have meaning assigned to by God. So you think of things like communion. You think of things like the worship service. And what church is meant to do, What when we get together, what we're doing right now is meant to do is remind us of all the ways, remind me of all the ways that what I love is not what I should love. That the things that I really care about are not the things that I should actually care about. And so worship brings us back and keeps reminding us to refocus our eyes off of those things, those desires that we have that rule our lives more than we want to admit, and refocus them on who God is. To refocus them on the fact that we are broken and messed up, but because of the cross of Jesus, we're more loved and accepted than we could possibly dream. And so this is our weekly reset. It's our weekly refocusing, it's our eye appointment that shapes the way we live throughout the week. But not only that, it's a call to sacrificial community. Peter mentions that one of the things that God is building us into is a people to make spiritual sacrifices for God. 
And one of the ways that looks is by living a life that intentionally sacrifices our wants, our desires, and even our stuff for others. Which begs the question, when's the last time you had to sacrifice to be a part of a community? See, one of the things that's the difference between just hanging out with like-minded people and true community, communion of the saints, is that one of those requires virtually nothing of us. The other one requires actual sacrifice on our part. And that's hard. Because we don't want to do that. I don't want you to mess with my stuff. I don't want you to... I don't want, I don't want to have to clean up after you leave my house. I don't want to have to clean up after your kids leave my house. You're pretty clean. Your kids, not so much. But are we willing to make that sort of sacrifice? Are we willing to be... put out? To be burdened by other people? in order to have community. You know, it's interesting. Um, I'm doing a wedding this weekend, and one of the things um, that I always love in the wedding service uh, is this phrase that marriage uh, doubles our joys and cuts our sorrows in half. It's my favorite part of the wedding vows. It doubles our joy and cuts our sorrow in half. Why? Because we have someone else to celebrate with when times are good. Right? When things are going well, we have someone else that we can say, Hey, g- guess what happened at work today? I got a promotion, or I made a sale, or I, I did the thing. And we have somebody who gets excited with us. And, and when things are going bad, we have somebody to commiserate with. We have somebody who says, Ugh. That's awful. That's a t- I, I know what that, that is terrible. And what's interesting, when, when Peter talks about this, when Peter talks about us making spiritual sacrifices, one of the things he's doing is he's using the language of connection that we use in the marriage service for the church. That the church should be not just one other person, but a whole community of people who can double our joy and cut our sorrow in half. But in order to do that, in order to have that sort of community, we have to sort of set aside our natural inclination. Because our natural inclination with people that are either happy or sad is to stay away from those people. You have met that person who is happy all the time. You know that person who is just three steps beyond bubbly. And what is your natural inclination? Chill. Stay away. What's the opposite side of this? We've all met those folks who have the same disposition as Eeyore. Right? Everything is bad. Nothing is good. I guess I'll go eat worms. Right? The, the, the people who, who drain us. 
And what happens is, you and I dislike people who have strong emotions. And so what do we do? We stay away from them. We keep them out of our community. Because, look, some of us are having bad days. We don't need that unbridled optimism in our lives. Or, hey, every time you're around, I feel terrible and want to run away. So why don't you stay away? At the end of that the day, do you know what that is? The, the, the word for keeping people out of our communities because they have too strong of emotions? The word for that is hatred. Our dislike and shunning of other people will always prevent us from having true community. But not only is our community a community that's based on the forgiveness of Jesus, not only is our community one that is filled with sacrifice in order to be true community, but it's also a community that is meant for others, that is meant to be expanding. Paul says, or Peter says, I'm going to just keep doing that. I'm, I'm literally robbing Paul to pay Peter. One of the things he says is, the reason why we are called out to be a chosen people, the reason why God is making us into a royal priesthood, is so that we can show forth the excellencies of what he has done. So we can show forth the goodness, community, true community. The community that we talk about in the creed is always meant to be shared. In fact, this is the problem with almost the entirety of the Old Testament saints. The people of Israel throughout the Old Testament kept going, nah, we don't want to tell anybody else about this. We're happy to have God in our corner, taking care of our community. Nobody else needs him. And God, one time, goes to a prophet and says, I want you to leave the borders of your place. And I want you to go talk to other people and tell them how good I am. And the prophet literally says, nope, I'm going to get in a boat and go the other way. I would rather leave my country and go to the farthest place I can think of than tell people from outside my community how good God is. That's Jonah, by the way. That did not end up well. But then it did. But then it didn't. If community, if the communion of the saints is meaningful to you, that first means that you've experienced its goodness. Because if church, if people around you, if the Christian community has not been valuable to you, you won't share it. So if we're going to be a community that looks at other people, we have to experience this actual community, this something beyond hanging out with one another, this something deeper than that. We have to experience it for ourselves. And once we do that, we will want to share it with others. We will want to tell people about it. Think about this. Think about whatever it is that you are, 
find the most joy in. Whether that's that's music or fitness or your job or whatever it is. When you find something that's meaningful to you, that you are passionate about, you will you will talk about you will find ways to work it into conversations, right? Some of you go to a CrossFit gym. Do you know how to tell if somebody does CrossFit? Don't worry. They'll tell you. Do you know how to tell if somebody is a vegan? Don't worry. They will tell you. You don't have to ask if someone's a vegan. Within 10 minutes of meeting somebody, they will find a way to remind you of their opinions on steak. Now this is fine. Veganism is a, a fine choice. But what this shows us is that those people actually believe something. People, people who are vegan believe something about animals and food and bacon that makes them passionate enough to make sacrifices, to make changes in their life, makes them passionate enough to share it with others. There are ways in which the church ought to look more like the vegan community. But where does this come from? Where does this desire for community, where does this urge towards that come from? It is rooted in the story of the entire Bible. Because it's interesting that community was not just created as something for humans to have. Community came before God made the world. Because God existed forever as a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Having true community within the Godhead. And the reason they created this world, one of the reasons they created this world is to say, this community is so beautiful that we have with one another, that we want to share it with others. We want to invite others into this dance. And so they create the world, and then we mess it up. Adam and Eve run from the community that God has created. They break that off. They shun it. And so one of the things that Jesus' death on the cross does is it restores us back to God from all of the ways that we have broken apart, from, from all the ways that we have pridefully treated other people, from all the ways that we have shown little hatreds to people in traffic, little hatreds to people in public's line. Jesus dies for those things to restore our community, our fellowship, our communion with God. But then he also creates a community for us to share and experience this all together. So where are you this morning? Where am I? For some of us, we're not experiencing community because we haven't experienced forgiveness. We've never looked at our lives, taken inventory and said, I am more broken and messed up than I want to admit. 
Others of us are on the opposite side of that coin. Some of us look around and think, I don't actually need forgiveness. I used to need forgiveness, but I'm good now. I've hardly sinned this week. And our lack of true community, our lack of having our thirst quenched by what community can give us, comes from the fact that we think that we don't need forgiveness. For others of us, the way that we lack community is because we're holding back from sharing with others. What is it that's making you go, you know, uh, this is not what I want to be a part of. What is it that's holding you back from sharing with others? What is it that you are holding back that you have to offer the community? 